all the power that we're talking about in Titus 2 to live the way God wants us to live is powered by Jesus Christ. So that last phrase, be thou power of my power. Okay? Um, That's where it comes from. If you will stand with me, I would like to read from Titus chapter 2. We're getting near to the end of this chapter, and we'll be finishing it out, Lord willing, today and next week, uh, finishing out chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. I want you to follow along because I always want you to know that the words that are preached in this church come from the Word of God. So I want you to see it and read it and know that it's there, um, and we're not making these things up, okay? Uh, Titus chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 1 down through 15. As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything they are to be well pleasing not argumentative not pilfering but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, Exhort and rebuke with all authority, and let no one disregard you. Let's pray. Father, again, as we turn to your words written by Paul to Titus, I pray that we would be struck by the splendor of your grace. And today, as we think about your grace and what it's done for us, what it's doing for us, and what ultimately it provides for us, I pray that we would fall in love with you all over again. And we'd remember that if it weren't for you, we would have no hope. But because you came, we have tremendous hope. We have a grounded and solid hope. And it's on this solid rock that we stand. Father, I pray you would help us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. I mentioned to you last week that one of the fears of a godly preacher is that he will produce Pharisees in his church. He'll tell people what to do, maybe how to do it, but he won't tell them the motivation for why to do it that way. And so he produces Pharisees. Paul has the same concern throughout his writings. And if you watch how Paul writes his books, Paul, anytime he gives a matter of duty, 
Along with that, he also provides doctrine. There's never duty without doctrine. Typically, when Paul writes, he gives the doctrine first, and that's what you'll see, for example, in the book of Ephesians, uh, even Philippians and Colossians. You'll see the doctrine first, and then following the doctrine, he says, okay, now here's how you live it. Here's the duty. In this book of Titus, at least in this chapter 2, he kind of flips that on his head, and he says, here's what you need to do. Here's the duty that you need to follow, and that's the duties he gave to older men, older women, younger men, younger women, slaves. And then once he gives all those duties, he says, now here's why you do that. Here's the doctrine that motivates your behavior. Okay, so Paul unfailingly follows this particular model. And the doctrine that Paul is going to point to this morning, this is the same doctrine he always points to in every one of his books, it's the doctrine of grace. And it's the doctrine of grace that motivates the Christian's behavior. Now, anytime a statement is made about grace, uh, it makes some people squeamish. It makes some people nervous. If you go talking about grace too much, you're going to hear about it from somebody. And the reason you're going to hear about it is because grace gets attacked from both sides. If there's too little grace, too little, that's taught to Christians, you'll see folks try to motivate themselves by some kind of a merit system. If I just read my Bible more, if I would just pray more, if I just conquer this particular sin, if I just go to church a little more often, then God will somehow be happy with me. If a person is trying to motivate his life uh, through the merit system, it's because there's a lack of grace. And a preacher who preaches that way breeds legalism. If the preacher says, here's what you should do, and doesn't say why you should do it, and what Christ has already done for you, then what the preacher ends up doing is bringing people to the place where it's kind of a self-help program. And people will either drive themselves to craziness, or there'll be the discouragement, or there'll even be lies, because they have to somehow get around the fact that they're, they're having trouble. So that's if you don't teach enough grace. On the other hand, if a preacher preaches too much grace, it's it's all grace, and there's never a call in his preaching for righteous living, then what will end up happening is people will mistake grace for licentiousness. That means I'm saved. Now that I'm saved, I can go do whatever I want. And you'll see people that will take the doctrine of grace and they'll abuse it. They'll live all kinds of ungodliness And yet they'll proclaim themselves to be Christian and somehow they think that grace just overlooks all of their bad behavior. So you see, grace gets it from both sides. And both of those scenarios, by the way, too little grace and too much grace, both of those are misunderstandings of what grace really is. And so this morning, as we're going to go through these verses, verses 11 through 14 is kind of where we're going to zone in. I want to give you, hopefully, a uh, biblical definition of grace. And that as you understand what grace is, you understand how it motivates you. And ultimately, you'll see the splendor, really, of what grace is all about. That's what I hope to accomplish this morning. 
Now you remember as we've been going through this book of Titus, particularly in chapter 2, Paul gives us some purpose statements. Why he wants us to live a godly life. What this grace is supposed to do. The, the goal in, in other people seeing grace in your life, what's it to accomplish? Well, if you look at verse 5, 8, and 10, you'll see these purpose statements. In verse 5, he says, that the word of God may not be reviled. That's why you live the way you do. Verse 8, that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. In verse 10, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. See, Paul has a very outward focus. Paul understands that the world is watching, and whatever they see in the Christian is either going to attract them or it's going to repel them. One of the two. So Paul wants them to live in such a way that the gospel is attractive and that the Christian life is attractive. Here's a question for you. Did you ever wonder why when God saves a person, why doesn't God just save that person and immediately yank them out of earth and go ahead and take them to heaven right then? Did you ever wonder that? Why, why, why after we're saved... Are we forced to live the rest of our life here on earth? I think the answer is this. I think that God wants us to live a life of godliness on earth so that the world can watch and they can see what a saved sinner looks like. And they can witness the power of God because they know what you were like before you were saved. And now they see what you're like after you're saved and they say, wow, your God's a powerful God. And that attractiveness the gospel's effect in the Christian's life then allows the Christian to spread the gospel to other people. And that was God's plan all along. You live a life of godliness, people see that, they're attracted by that, and then you now have a platform to tell what Christ has done for you, what God has done for you. So, the layout of this chapter, Titus 2, Paul says, older men, older women, younger men, younger women, this is how you're supposed to live so that all of the world that's watching sees grace. And now Paul's going to say, and let me remind you what that grace is. Let me tell you what motivates you. Three things this morning. These are in your message notes. Three things about grace. Number one, grace saves us. Number two, grace sanctifies us. And number three, grace satisfies us. Let's look at number one. Grace saves us. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. We often talk about grace, and we talk about grace as sort of an abstract principle. God has given us grace, or God's grace. But in reality, grace isn't something abstract. Grace is a person. Grace is a person. Look at what it says there. It says, the grace of God has appeared. That word appeared there is where we get our English word epiphany. It's, it's the invisible becoming visible. It's the divine, the invisible, suddenly being able to be seen. Okay, It's an epiphany. The grace of God has appeared. And of course what he's talking about there is he's talking about the birth of Jesus Christ. The incarnation, the birth of the invisible God in the form of a human baby. The grace of God has appeared. Okay? In John chapter 1, Alex read it this morning. It says, The Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. 
in 1 John chapter 1, it says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and we've touched with our hands. This is Jesus Christ. We've heard him, we've seen him, we've touched him. He says, this is the word of life that was made manifest. The grace of God appeared. And when he appeared, according to verse 11, what did he do? He brought salvation for all people. Now, salvation means what? It means to save. It means to redeem. And if you and I need to be saved, then it implies that we're stuck in something, right? We need to be saved from something. So what is it that you and I need to be saved from? Well, we need to be saved from the wrath of God as penalty for our sin. That's what we need to be saved from. Because there's not a single person in this room this morning. As I look around, I I hate to tell you, but I see a bunch of sinners. We're all sinners, right? We've all sinned against God. We all need to be saved because we all stand under the judgment of God. We're all in this boat together. Because we've sinned, we deserve the reality of a place called hell. And don't ever fool yourself, by the way. Don't ever fool yourself into thinking that hell is not a real place. There's some really popular authors out there right now that are teaching that hell is not real. Or, at least at its worst, worst, it's a place where you go for a period of time where you're refined, uh, and then ultimately you either go on to heaven or you're just completely annihilated and you cease to exist. That's what some folks are trying to teach today, um, but it's simply not true. Scripture teaches us over and over. Jesus talked about hell frequently. It's a place of burning. It's a place of unceasing, unrelenting fire. In the place called hell, there's this thing called the consuming worm. It's a worm that eats at you, but you never die. It's a place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. It's a place of utter darkness. And this place of hell goes on forever and ever and ever. Just thinking about it, the thoughts of hell are so terrifically horrid that it should make you shudder that anyone would go there. And yet, that's what you and I deserve because we told that little white lie, because we lost it with our kids, because we gave our spouse the cold shoulder, All of those things deserve upon us then the eternity of weeping and gnashing of teeth where the worm never dies. That's a big weight, isn't it? So why did the grace of God appear, according to verse 11? To bring salvation. It's a gift. It's a wonderful gift You don't have to experience the terrors of hell because Jesus took the punishment for you. What a relief. What a magnificent relief. Jesus died on the cross, and as he hung there, the wrath of God poured out on him. The wrath of God that pours out on every unbeliever in hell forever poured out on Jesus Christ for every person who would ever believe. 
when you and I, by faith, believe in Jesus Christ, we're saved to the uttermost. It's grace. I would encourage you. I would encourage you every morning when you get up. I have a little piece of paper hanging in in my bathroom. It's right beside the mirror. And every morning, I make an attempt to look at that piece of paper and remind myself of the reality of hell and then immediately remind myself of Christ's price that he paid on the cross and the grace that he's been given to me. And when you think, when you start off your morning thinking about the grace of God in your life, your day really can't be that bad. (laughs) Because the worst is not yours to bear. The eternality of hell is not yours to bear. And so anything else that I encounter today isn't going to be nearly as bad as what I deserved. So I thank Jesus Christ for that. Your thankfulness for the gospel increases when you think about the price of hell and the price of Calvary. Now, he says here in verse 11, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. It doesn't matter if you're older. It doesn't matter if you're younger. It doesn't matter what social station you have in life. Salvation is for you. It's a gift for you. You don't have to have the right last name. You don't have to have a certain wealth factor. The gift of salvation is for you. Don't stumble over that verse. Some people stumble over that verse and think that God is going to save everyone. That's the idea of universalism. And that idea is not supported throughout Scripture. Jesus says, whosoever will may come. Not everybody does, but whosoever will may come. The salvation of the cross of Christ is sufficient to cover your sins. Now, here's the problem. People say grace saves, and then they stop right there. That's over. It's done. People stop. They, they've prayed the prayer. They've walked the aisle. They've joined the church, and now they just go on, and they just live life. And I did my part. I'm part of the church. Uh, grace is sufficient. Now I'll just go do what I want to do. And they miss, I think, one of the greatest elements of grace. And that is that grace takes you where you are, but grace refuses to leave you where you are. Grace not only saves you, but grace sanctifies you. Saving grace will change you. Look at verse 12. Look what grace does. Grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and instead to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. In other words, grace trains us to say no to ungodliness. I'm not going to do that. That's ungodly. That's a worldly passion. And I'm going to say yes to these things over here. Now, I think it's interesting what Paul puts here, the things that is training us to renounce. The first thing he says is, ungodliness 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 is not just wicked behavior I I think we'd all agree somebody's acting ungodly when they're acting in a wicked manner we understand that but there's another part to ungodliness that I would venture to say most of us in this room struggle with and that is this we often go through our day without really a conscious thought being given to God. 
How many of you go through your entire day and at the end of the day you sort of stop and you think, huh, I haven't even prayed today. Uh, I haven't read my, I haven't read the Bible today. I guess I'll do it tomorrow. How many of you do that? I'm guilty of those same things sometimes. We go through our day not thinking about God. Do you know that is ungodliness? As Americans, our lives are typically very organized and they're very motivated and they run by themselves. And so we have to actually make a conscious effort to stop and think about God. I remember a quote once from Charles Spurgeon. He said this one time. Catch this. He said, I do not recall a time in my Christian life when I went for more than 15 minutes without consciously thinking about God. I'm not there yet. (laughs) How about you? And he felt guilty that it, it took 15 minutes before he thought about God again. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness, to say no to worldly passions. Worldly passions are anything that the world will pursue that they think will bring them eternal happiness. A brand new yacht won't bring you eternal happiness. A higher salary package won't bring you eternal happiness. There's nothing wrong with those things per se. But if you value those things more than you value and pursue God, then that's a worldly passion. And Paul says, we say no to worldly passions. So what do we say yes to? Well, we say yes, according to this verse, to to live self-controlled, to be upright, and to be godly. Self-controlled has an inward focus. In other words, I want to make sure that I conduct myself in a way that's pleasing to God. Uprightness has an outward focus. I want to make sure that when other people see me, they see me living for the Lord. And godly living has an upward focus. I want to make sure that as I'm living, when God watches me, he's pleased with my conduct. So you see, grace is a teacher. Grace doesn't just take us and leave us there. Grace says, okay, Sean, I'm going to take you here. But in the course of this year, I'm going to take you here. And then I'm going to take you here. And I'm going to take you here. And grace continually changes us. It frees us from the power of sin. So if you encounter a person, if you encounter somebody who claims to have Jesus as their Savior, oh yes, I love Jesus, and that person continues to live a life of ungodliness and live a life pursuing worldly passions, then you have good reason to question whether they really understand grace. Because grace changes a person. If you look through the New Testament, I want you to do this study sometime on your own. Go through the New Testament and look how often the New Testament writers refer to Jesus as Savior and Lord. There's a reason why those two terms are put together. He's Savior and Lord. He not only saves us, frees us from the power of sin, but he's our Lord. He's our master. He teaches us then how to live and how to live for him. He's Savior and Lord. There's a lot of controversy over that. Some people think you don't have to have the Lord part, at least not until later in your walk. And I would argue you can't divorce those two. He's either both or he's neither. So grace saves us, according to verse 11. Grace sanctifies us. And grace also satisfies us. 
Why? Because there's something more. Look at verse 13. Paul says, We're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming back. We've waited now for a little over 2,000 years, and we're still waiting. But Jesus is coming back. Jesus not only frees us from the penalty of sin, and he not only frees us from the power of sin, but one day he will free us from the very presence of sin. We'll live in heaven and sin will be no more. There'll be no more tears. There'll be no more heartache, no more pain. The question is, and it always will be until Jesus comes back, are you ready? Are you ready? Could be before I finish the sermon, he could be back. Might be this afternoon. It might be another 2,000 years. We don't know. But we know that it's soon. He promises us that it's soon. I read this interesting fact, and I thought that it illustrated the point very well. Listen to this. During his time in the White House, President Carter did something that no other president has ever done. On several occasions, he stayed in the homes of common Americans. I don't know how he picked them, but he wanted to convey that he was in tune with the needs of average Americans. Now, if you got a call this week from the White House announcing that the president would like to stay in your home sometime next month, meaning that your living room and kitchen would be on national television, I predict that you would do some house cleaning. Your home would sparkle because you knew that the president was coming. And friend, there is someone much greater than the president coming to your home. Are you ready? Does your house and does your life sparkle for the Savior, Jesus Christ? There's a story in your Bible of some folks who weren't ready for Jesus' return. I want you to turn to Matthew 25, and you'll see this. It's really a tragic story. And it ought to sadden us to read it, but it's meant to motivate us Matthew 25, read of the story of the parable of ten virgins. And these ten virgins were supposed to be waiting for the bridegroom to come. And here's how the story goes in Matthew 25, starting at verse 1. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here's the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all those virgins rose and they trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, For you know neither the day nor the hour. It's kind of a dreadful story, isn't it? In one sense, 
at least for the five that weren't prepared, it's a warning. You don't know when Jesus is coming. He's coming very soon. Grace saved you, yes. Grace is changing you, yes. But there's something more. And are you ready for that? Are you prepared for the satisfaction that grace will bring? For those of you that are ready, like the five wise virgins, what a day that will be. We're going to sing a song later, I think. It goes like this. You may recognize these words. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. When I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land. What a day. Glorious day that will be. I think the older a believer gets, the more he looks forward to that day. Why does Jesus do these things for us? We didn't deserve it. Why would he do this? Well, if you look back in Titus 2, the last verse says, He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus did this for us because he wanted a people of his own possession who would live for him. His prized possession. 1 Peter 2 says it like this. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Exodus 19 says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. Friend, if you're a believer this morning, you are the prized possession of Jesus Christ. He loves you. And now he wants you to live for him. He treasures you. He cherishes you. Why do all the things in Titus 2? Why live self-controlled lives? Because Jesus gave himself for you. He did all these things when you were undeserving. And now all he says is, I want you to take up your cross and follow me. And I'd gladly do that because I've been spared the wrath of God in hell. Ephesians 2 says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And as you walk in those good works, your life becomes attractive. People see that. They notice that. And the Christian life becomes one that is beautiful. And then it gives you the platform to say, friend, Jesus died for you too. You too can have this salvation. You too can have this grace. That was God's plan. That you then become his mouthpiece and you preach his word through all the nations. I heard these study results, and I want to conclude with this. I I, I thought this was absolutely fascinating when I heard this. There were some folks who studied poverty and the effects of poverty on people. And here's what they discovered. Poverty-level people live for respect. The one thing that they want in life is for people to respect them. They don't own anything. They don't have any money. The only thing they have is respect. And that's why at poverty levels, you often see people getting in fights and and murderous encounters because so-and-so disrespected them, okay? 
Poverty level people live for respect. What do middle wealth people live for? Well, middle wealth people live for security. These are the folks that are planning for the future. They're protecting their assets so that one day they can enjoy the benefits of retirement. They live for security. But do you know what high wealth people live for? High wealth people don't live for respect because that typically comes just by the nature of their wealth. And high wealth people don't live for security because they have all the money. They're not worried about security. You know what high wealth people live for? They live for influence. They want to change the world. They want to leave their mark on the world. When they die, they want people to come along and say, that person changed the world. And when I heard this, when somebody was describing this to me, here's the thought that went through my mind. Because we have Jesus Christ, and because we have the wealth of heaven coming our way, we, as Christians, are high wealth people. Spiritually, we are high wealth. And as a result, we ought to be living our lives for influence. And if I want to make a mark on this world, it starts by telling the gospel to someone else. It starts by living a life of godliness. It starts by being attractive because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when I leave this world, my hope is that someone comes along and says, you know what, Sean impacted me because he told me the truth about God. He told me the truth of the gospel. And I am a different person because Jesus Christ saved me. I want to live a life that's motivated by grace, that's marked by godliness, and it manifests itself by preaching the gospel. I hope that's your goal. Motivated by the gospel, marked by godliness, and manifested in speaking the gospel. Are you with me? You want to leave that kind of mark on this world? Let's pray. Father, it's only because of your mighty grace that any of us can stand before you. God, it's only because of your grace that we look forward to the day when you'll take us by the hand and you'll lead us through the promised land. Father, we can't wait. I'm looking forward to that day. But until that day comes, God, I pray that your grace would change me, sanctify me. I pray that that would be the prayer of every one of us in this room. And I pray that when we meet you in the sky, or when you call us home, and people conduct our funeral service, that they say that we made an impact, not because we were anything special, but because you were special. And because you changed us and we were willing to tell others about that change. God, I thank you for what you've done for us on the cross of Jesus Christ. And I pray that it's that grace that would then motivate us. We don't want to live this way out of obligation. We want to live this way because we desire to. We would do anything for you because you've done so much for us. Father, may this guide us for all of our days on this earth. I pray in Jesus' name.